There is an exclusive switch or Swiss watchmaker by the name of Patek Philippe. Has anyone ever heard of this guy? Oh, okay. So I'm not much of a watch person myself, but I've heard that those particular watches developed by him, they are like the timepieces that have ever been and ever will be. As a matter of fact, I was watching CNN, and they displayed a watch that was made in 1928. And do you know how much it cost? 1.4 million dollars. Huh. Now this is a watch, right? It's not a house on the ocean. It's not a small village in Europe. It's a watch. And I can't fathom spending a million dollars on something as lackluster on my iPhone as telling me what time it is. However, it's remarkable on how they advertise these watches. So if you've never heard of this watch before, or this watch company, this is the best one-line grabber. You never actually own a Patek Philippe. You merely take care of it for the next generation. Oh, now I think I want to watch. <laughs> you know, as Christians, we firmly believe this truth that we never really own anything. Everything that you have in your life is on loan from on high. You're called to take care of it. You're called to pay it forward. You're called to pass it on to the next generation, but nothing that you have, so the Bible tells us, is from you. Not your house, not your cash, not your car, not your health, not that favorite NFL team's green and yellow sweatshirt, oops, I mean blue and white, that's hanging in your closet, or all that other stuff you got. None of it is yours. We believe that it all came from God, it all belongs to God, and failing to understand this can actually be quite dangerous, so this is a true story. So there was a woman who finished her shopping, and she had a grocery bag in each arm, and she was kind of in mode walking to her car, and as she puts her hand with her grocery bag on her driver's side handle, all of a sudden she sees four men sitting in her car. She drops the bag, she gets out her purse, and she actually pulls out a handgun. True story. And then she shouts, I have a gun and I know how to use it. Well, these four guys come flying out of the car faster than jackrabbits, and off they go. And she's really shaken up, so she puts her groceries in the back seat, and she sits down in front of the steering wheel, and she kind of takes a moment, and she takes a deep breath, and she puts her key into the ignition, and it doesn't work. <laughs> and slowly, the realization comes to her, she's not in her car. So she gets out of her car, and there's her car five spaces down. Uh-oh. So she takes out her groceries and she puts them in her own car. And by the time she turns the key in her ignition, she feels really guilty. So she drives right to the police station. So now she's explaining to the sergeant at the desk exactly what she's done. And he starts laughing. 
and she is insulted, and he points over to this glass panel across the way, and he said, ma'am, behind that glass panel are four guys who claim that they're reporting a carjacking by a five-foot-one elderly woman with thick glasses and curly white hair. So needless to say, there were no charges. <laughs> you know, but the point is really simple, right? Life is absolutely ridiculous when you try to claim something that it's yours when it doesn't really belong to you. Jesus is the best storyteller, and he has this great parable that Bruce read for us this morning. And it's really about this business leader who's going to take a really long trip However, before he leaves, he kind of wants to get his house in order. He wants to delegate some work. So he calls in some of his managers and three of his servants, employees, and he starts to delegate. And what is it that he gives to the servants? Talents. Okay. So scholars agree that a single talent represents, are you ready for this, 25 years of a typical salary in Jesus' day. That's one talent. So if you actually put it in our American culture today, one talent would be akin to $1 million. So many who read this parable of the tenants, we go into it right from the start. We get it all wrong. We're like, darn, Jesus is so good to those two guys. He gives the one five talents. He gives the other guy two talents. He really gyps that guy who only gets the one talent. But now we know how much that one talent is worth. He just gets a measly $1 million. So as it turns out, we have a lot to learn from Jesus in this parable. They did then when he preached it, and we do now. You know, as it turns out, all three of these men get actually plenty of money. And now you're talking that no matter which one of them you're speaking about, the master turns out to be quite a generous giver. And he's trusting with his employees, with the money that the company has made. So I propose that the problem is not what this man lacks with the one talent. The problem is that he is not faithful in what he has already. So in the end, he's not judged on the matter of has, he's judged on what he does with what he has. So it's why one talent in this man is the tragic person in this story. It's not about what he lacks. It's that he doesn't honor God and the master with what he has already been given. He's afraid. And so out of his fear, what he does do with that talent, what does he do? He buries it, right? He literally digs a hole in the ground and puts a talent in it and buries it. And then he waits for the master to come home. And the master starts with the guy with the five and then the two. And they are honored and they're given even more. They've been responsible. And then we get to him. And all of a sudden, he comes up with this story and he looks right at the master and he goes, well, I knew you to be a harsh man. Wait. What? When, was he harsh when he gave him the talent? I knew you to be a harsh man, so I was afraid. You know, what? 
And so look at that reaction from the master. I mean, this also has to be one of the oldest patterns in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. If you go all the way back to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, they are afraid and they hide. And this is the problem with our humanity. Sometimes we self-sabotage. We repeat ourselves over and over again. We become afraid and we hide. We become afraid and we hide. And then Jesus uses a word that when you translate it from the original about this man's fear, and the word in translation actually means he has a phobia. Huh. So you talk about what the one talent man's fear, and the major difference then between the guy with the one talent and the guys with the two and the five talents are the fundamental belief in the master's character. The point of this parable is that what you believe about God will determine how you will invest your life and your resources. If you believe that God is hard and stingy, you will behave like the guy with the one talent. You know, go back to the beginning of the story, and we see that this, these talents were given as gifts and rewards for faithful service by the master. And those first two guys were thankful. They were so thankful that they responded in the way that they knew the master would want them to respond by making sure that money went farther than the money that they were even given. So those two men believed the master to be good and to be kind and to be faithful. And that's how they invested their time and their work and that money. You know, there is such joy in learning how to receive a gift without guilt, especially if it's not like our birthday or Christmas. And someone gives us a gift and we're like, uh-oh, we have to go get them a gift now. You know, the joy that Jesus invites us is into the joy of being receivers of what he has already entrusted to us. So the great misuse of the one talent man is that he is unwilling to risk what he has, which violates what Jesus tells us. Those who want to save their lives will lose it, but the ones who are willing to let go of their lives for my sake and for the sake of the gospels will find it. You know, in order to fully understand this biblical principle, I would like us to do a little exercise today. Oh, no. Don't panic. Trust me. Who said, uh-oh? <laughs> All right, so I would like you to get your wallets out of your pockets or your wallets out of your purses, and I want you to hold them in your hand or whatever you're carrying your money in. Maybe it's a money clip. And you're going to hold that in your hand. And if you want to hang on to it for dear life, no judgment here. You can even feel sorry about what's in it or not in it. No judgment here. So there is this really great author named John Ortenberg. And he says that what you are all now holding in your hand is the temple in the 21st century, and that money is often the chief rival to God in today's society. So Jesus has always says, you have two masters, God and money, and that cannot be. You must choose. 
You cannot serve both God and money, which is why I want us to participate in yet another little exercise. I would like you to turn to someone near you that you're not related to, and I would like you to exchange your wallet or whatever you have in your hand. Ushers, we're going to batten down the doors. Nobody's leaving. So this is an act of trust. Wow. I hope I have a job when this sermon is over. Ooh. Hey, did somebody get two wallets out there? <laughs> okay, we're going to have an offering, and I want you to give generously um, to the endowment fund. Give like you've never given before. No, just kidding, just kidding. Okay, so what's the feeling that you're experiencing right now knowing that your neighbor is holding your identification, your debit cards, your credit cards, your cash, probably pictures of your children which you thought of last? Uh, I, I would like to name that anxiety. Yep, that's anxiety. Maybe you've got a little bit, maybe the heart's going a little bit fast because Lord knows what if I cause you to do another exercise. You'll be happy to know the exercises are over. And I considered going back to preaching, but you never listened to me. So you can now get your money back. So did anyone come out ahead in this exercise? So according to Jesus, how you invest your resources is the clearest identification of how you really view God. So to Jesus, the Christian life is not where we hide and preserve what we have. The faithful life is one of investment and of sacrifice. It's not afraid and it doesn't hide. Life in Christ is investment and sacrifice. It's not so much about how much you have, but how you choose to use what you have. So today is Endowment Sunday, and what does that mean? It means that with great intention, we need to invest in the goodness and light that is coming through the ministry and the missions and the programs and the worship services and people of every age that are happening in this church and we need to invest it, and we need to take it out into the world. And in that way, we're going to produce a legacy, just like all of those who came before us. We have 91 years behind us, and we're going to have 91 years ahead of us. And my goodness, doesn't this hurting world need faith, hope, and love? Amazing. So I want to give you an example that really touched my heart. Once in a while, I come across a story, and it really has a profound effect on me. So I'm going to share it with you today. In a newspaper feature in 2014, there was a photo of this 10-year-old boy, and his name is Jackson Rogers. And Jackson and his family attend the First Presbyterian Church in San Antonio, so before I tell you why Jackson made the news, I have to go back two years earlier to a staff meeting at that church with the pastors and the leaders, their session, their deacons, their staff. 
And they had decided that they were going to take the not stewardship season and make it a season in the life of the church affecting every age and every area of their church. And they wanted to look at what it means individually and as a church to do something Jesus describes as kingdom living. So what is kingdom living? It is being like Jesus. It's being Christ-like to the best of your ability every day. So Jackson was listening to these conversations that were going on all around him, and Jackson took Jesus up on his word. So somehow, over the course of a couple of months, he pulled out all that money from Christmas and birthdays. I think he actually traded some things, maybe cards. And by the end of two months, he was sitting with his parents at their living room table because he called the family meeting, and he put $100 on the dining room table. True story. And then he explained that he really did what the church was asking him to do. He had been praying, and he had been saving up his resources, and that he thinks he finally figured out what Jesus is calling him to do with this $100, and he says to them, Mom, Dad, I think I'm supposed to build a house for someone that doesn't have a home. Now, his parents didn't want to curb his enthusiasm, but they looked at him and they gently told him, they said, Jackson, houses cost way more than $100. To which he responded, oh, I know. That's why I'm going to use my $100 to write to as many people with as many letters as I can to raise enough money to put a family in a house. So literally that day, he got out his ballpoint pen, he got out his notebook paper and in his 10-year-old writing, in the course of two months, he wrote literally 170 letters and they sent them out to everyone they knew. Well, what began to happen is that people who received them began to write their own letters. Some people copied his letter to have his handwriting. Some of them scanned it and put it in their email. Oh my goodness, and I'm happy to tell you that Jackson Rogers single-handedly raised $43,000, which is enough money to build a Habitat house in San Antonio, which was built in 2014. So if you come across this newspaper photo, the house is there, the house that 10-year-old Jackson built. And as if that wasn't the best part of the story, there's more. Because who moved into the house was a family by the name of Ramirez, and they had, at that time, an eight-year-old boy named Joe. So since that time, Joe and Jackson are pretty tight. But here was the first time this family was ever able to live in a house and have a house of their own. And in that picture, there was a driveway, the newly paved, and Joe and Jackson were just playing basketball together. The pastor told the story that next Sunday at church because he had been at the house and he said he couldn't take his eyes off these two boys who seemed to be oblivious to all that had actually happened because 
of Jackson's faith. They were just two guys playing basketball. You know, my friends, my partners in ministry, one day the master of the universe is going to return to us as he promised. And in anticipation of that day, how are we holding up our resources next to our call to follow Jesus with all that he has given to us? I think we need to stop spending so much time worrying about what we don't have and start praying and thinking strategically about what we do have in ways that we can expand our ministry. How might we use what we have to show others who Jesus is? How might we use what we have to spread faith and hope and love in this world? For we believe above all that the master is wise and generous and good. We live in response to that goodness by how we share our time and our abilities and our resources. And Jesus' greatest desire with each and every single one of us is to look at us and say, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. So when it comes to sharing your time and your abilities and your resources, don't hide them. Don't try to bury them. And do not be afraid and receive gifts that God gives you with gratitude. And then dream like you've always dreamed of giving. Remember, you never actually own what you have. You merely take care of it for the next generation and the next and the next. God bless you. God bless our bright future together. And God bless the incredible ministries and missions and programs and building projects that have come through the endowment fund. Amen.